So our scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the, for the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Hallelujah. His word is good. That was really good. Hallelujah. His word is good. That's more fun. I know we're not a charismatic church, but you are welcome to dialogue with me while, while I uh, engage with you and while we preach. We want some amen corners all over this place, and so you're welcome to, to kind of come back and forth with us. But it is fun to conclude the scripture and say, hallelujah, what was just spoken to me and over me. God's word is good. Uh, welcome to Trinity. My name is Jonathan. If you're joining for the first time or you've only been here for a couple of weeks, a special welcome to you. This is a good Sunday to join us in, whether you are online or whether you're here in the room. And for those of you who call Trinity home, we're in a Vision Sunday where we are looking at part two of what we've called our Together Campaign or Together Initiative, where we've been just breaking down this basic theme of what does it look like for the church to be an embodied presence? What does it mean for us to live life together? And over the past summer months, we have been trying to do that. We've been building community. We've been having lunches. Uh, we've been reopening up our homes. We've been growing together through our gospel and mental health series. Uh, we've been trying to learn to simply live life again because after 12 to 18 months of a strange absence, this thing that's supposed to be so embodied and so present has really been atrophied and changed when we were online for a year. And so as we're rebuilding what it means to be the church and we're stretching these muscles that are driven by Jesus, we're excited for you to come into phase two of Together as we go into the fall which is looking at the beauty of being an embodied church, part one, but also a life together church where we are apprenticing under Jesus together. And that may be a strange word or an old-fashioned word, but hopefully it can become a very relevant word in our community as we think about formation, as we think about following Jesus. And so we're excited that you're here today to go into this vision from Ephesians 4. But really what I hope to do with the Vision Sunday is unpack why we are here as a church and, in fact, why Trinity was planted a little over two years ago, why we were planted in the first place. And we're going to be looking at some of our animating principles, the things that fuel our life together as followers of Jesus. One of the key ways or maybe the simple way to understand what is this church about would be that we value life together for the city. And we're going to unpack that. Now, any club, any organization could say that they value life together for the city. And so we're going to unpack what it means for the Christian church to value life together, a unique sort of togetherness that's driven by the fact that we are all radically different, that most of us, I don't want to say most of us, some of us would not be friends 
We would not be in the same room. We would not share the same space or a table or home if it were not for the, the beauty of grace that has brought us together, a diverse community that comes together to say, I am for you because the gospel has brought me into this thing called a family. And so we value life together for the city, which really means that we are a group of folks who are apprenticing under Jesus, following him together, being thoroughly shaped by, by the reality of his life, by the reality of his death and the resurrection, all of it which is affirmed by the fact that he came out of the grave on the third day, affirming what he said, what he taught. We want to be a church that is planted on the historical reality of the presence of Jesus and to weave his story into everything that we do. And we believe that's the most formative, most important, most valuable message on the planet. But let me ask a couple of questions before we jump into Ephesians 4. Why would anyone in our current moment, sophisticated moment, technologically advanced, scientifically driven, supernaturally skeptical, postmodern moment, why would you decide to apprentice under Jesus of Nazareth? Of course, it all depends on your opinion of who Jesus was and who he is. Was Jesus simply a good teacher? Was he a man of wisdom? Was he a man of understanding but nothing more? Was he an expert in the law? Was he an exegete? Maybe he was just a skilled orator with this profound gift of woo, ability to draw a crowd. Was he an expert in the law? Was he just somebody who had a kind heart and a really unique philosophy of life and meaning? Was he simply a great storyteller, a sage of sorts, someone with this unique philosophy that a lot of people were interested in, but of course he was a poor politician and he made the wrong people mad at the end of his life. And, in, and inevitably, it's just kind of a tragedy of a story as we look at the person of Jesus. Or, as Christianity upholds, was he the one and only Son of God, the Savior of the world, who wrote himself into human history, who arrived on our planet as a baby, the son of a teenage mother and a carpenter father, who lived a perfectly moral life, only to lay his life down at the end of the story as a ransom and a payment for the sins of the entire world? And he, did he defeat death on the third day, breaking the grip of sin and fear and condemnation that is justly ours because of the simple fact that we love ourselves and self-rule so much more than we care about the things of God? And is this suffering servant also a servant king reigning and ruling and redeeming all things, seeing this beautiful reality growing as the announcement of his kingdom is being worked out literally right here and right now because he's not dead and because he promised to send his spirit? Is that who Jesus is? Everybody, almost every single human being on the planet has an opinion of who Jesus is. It's inevitable. Our history is divided by his arriving. You're going to have an opinion about him. But Christianity, when we look into the word of God, hallelujah, his word is good and his word is true. When we look into the word, we find that this person, Jesus, is the most important, most significant, most shaping, most brilliant human being to ever walk on our planet. And not simply because he was a human, but because we believe he was the son of God. And his historical reality changes everything. That's what our vision is about. His historical reality changes everything. 
And we need to hear the good news over and over again that you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ apart from anything that you've ever done, despite who you really are. That's what we're going to unpack today. And that thing, that message, it shapes you, it changes you, and it drives you out with a new sort of vision. See, we don't apprentice under Jesus in order to earn his love. We apprentice under Jesus because we already have his love, and that changes the narrative entirely. Did you hear that? We don't apprentice, we don't follow, we don't sit at his feet so that he can love us. We sit there because he already does love us. How do I know he loves me? Because of the gospel. The gospel is news, it's historical. I can't announce something as news unless it's actually happened. Yesterday was the anniversary of something that happened 20 years ago. Is it myth, is it mythology, is it allegory? No, it actually happened in human history and it changes our view of American history and it changes our view of today who we are as a people, that's news that's been announced. It happened. And that's what the Bible is. It's announcing news to us. And we go, man, I have to live in in the light of that new reality of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. Our vision as a church, I'm going to jump into Ephesians. Our vision is to say that Trinity exists. We exist to make and mature followers of Jesus for the renewal of our city. And it's so important that we tack on the second part of that so that we don't become insular. Jesus was not insular. You read through the Gospels and he's consistently saying, can I love you? Can I have a meal with you? Can I engage you? And they accuse him of being a drunk and a glutton because of the type of people that he spent time with. If we want to be people who are shaped by the Gospel, we have to live like him, love like him. But guess what? We have to be formed by him. Naturally, I'd rather just kind of do my own thing. But we want to be a group of people who is being shaped and equipped to live out the gospel in our time and our moment. So the three things from Ephesians I'm going to walk you through. Number one, we're going to look at these themes, these big ideas, these big anchor points in Paul's message to the church. Number one, we're going to look at equipping and formation. Number two, we'll look at ministry and maturity. And we're going to look at number three, this unique concept of saints and sinners. All key words in this passage from Paul. Equipping information, ministry and maturity, and then saints and sinners. The bulk of what I have to say is in point one, and then point two and three are going to follow much shorter. But under point one, equipping information. Look at verse 11 with me. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let me stop there. As you hear just the beginning of this passage read aloud, you heard a few different job descriptions read in front of you. One of them happens to be mine. You can give me kind of an evaluation later. I don't need it right now. I can't handle it, all right? But you can give me an evaluation later. This is what your pastor is supposed to be doing. But there's also a job description for the church in these few verses. So let me take you there. Caveat, my father was and still is a pastor. He tried to retire, then he got asked to be a pastor again. Pastors can't stop pastoring, and so he's been pastoring for over 40 years now. And I do remember being a kid when somebody would come up to my dad, and I don't know if they intentionally said it like this, but they'd essentially say something like, hey, what do you do the rest of the week since I understand you only seem to work on Sunday? Right? <laughs> and he'd just look at them and go, man, I spent the week praying for you. That's what I've been doing all week. I've been praying for your heart and your soul. You need help. 
of course I work more than Sunday, but it's not easy just to kind of stand up and give a sermon. I, I prepared it this morning. No, I didn't. You prepare all week, right? You think about it. You mull on it. You pray for it. But really, the job description doesn't say preachers shall preach or pastors shall preach. That's not my job description. Look at it again with me in verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, another word for pastor, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. All of you are created in the image of a God who works. One of the first things we learn about God is that he is a worker. One of the first things you learn about Jesus Christ is that he's blue collar, right? He's a carpenter. God, when he shows up on our planet, is a worker. All of you are made in the image of God, and your calling and my calling are each unique. My calling to be a pastor in this church is not more unique than anybody who's been called to be a plumber or a doctor or a mother. We believe in the dignity of all work. I just happen to have a unique role, just like you, in the body of Christ. And contrary to public opinion, my job is not to do all of the work of ministry. I can't do that. You wouldn't want me to do that. I am too limited. My wife would not want me to do that. All of the work of ministry rests on the shoulders of those who have been vocationally called, professionally called. In no way is that the biblical job description. My job, according to verse 11 and 12, is unique, but it is limited. And my calling is to enable you to use your gifts to build up this strange group of people called the church so that we might attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and that we might speak truth and love to one another so that as we are built up in this weird, strange thing called the gospel, the world goes, man, that is a group of people that I want to know more about. What makes them tick? Why do they gather week after week to be shaped and to be formed? My job is to equip you. Now, how do we equip you biblically? One way you would say it's easy. Well, just teach. Yes, that is one way. We teach the gospel week after week. We take you back to Jesus Christ week after week. Pastors, according to the Apostle Paul, are also supposed to use their life to be able to model to the church. My life is so imperfect. So was the Apostle Paul's. Just ask my wife, okay? Imperfect. I'm not here because I'm holier than anybody. I just happen to have a unique call on my life to teach and to be a pastor. You have a unique call on your life. Each of us has been called. And we can equip the saints for the work of ministry kind of by giving you certain tools. I can give you maybe some books to read. We can give you some other things that are instructive of the mind. But that's actually not the biblical format. The format is the renovation of your heart. That's what we're after when we come into this space. I want to help renovate your heart. Write that down. This from Dallas Willard. I'm going to quote him a few times in part one. Renovation of the human heart done through a process where your life, your heart, your soul, and your desires are shaped and formed. This is what we would call spiritual formation. This is what it means for us to be a church in this time and place. We want your heart to be renovated with the gospel because the Apostle Paul says that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to equip you. This isn't just give you books to read. This is to help shape your interior life. Equipping. So that together we might build up this thing called the church 
of Jesus. In the Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish that I could be with you. Dallas Willard, he was a UCLA professor, and he's an author, and he's the one who has termed this, this idea of the renovation of the heart. And he says that our, that is our greatest collective need as human beings, our greatest collective need. He writes, that spiritual place within us from which outlook, choices, and actions come has been formed by a world away from God. Now it must be transformed. You see what he's saying? It's not even a Christian concept yet. It's just a human concept at the beginning. Here's what he's saying. He's opening up a conversation about what it means for you and I to be human beings. Are you a body only? Only physical? Our soul being a figment of our biological desire, maybe for something like immortality, to live forever. And so we wish and we hope that there was this thing that would, that would live longer than our bodies, a transcendent aspect of who we are, a figment of our biological desire to kind of beat death. Is the external all there is? Are our emotions and feelings simply a part of our genetic framework, or are we fearfully and wonderfully complex? Body, mind, and soul wired together by a brilliant creator. Doesn't take much to, for you to understand that there has been a proliferation of self-help books, both in the Christian world in some senses and in the non-Christian world. And both Christians and non-Christians, because we understand that there is this desire to be different, to be able to grow, to be able to be stretched, that there's something more going on in us than biological processes. There is an external world that we can see, things that we can observe, things that we can measure. But there is an internal world inside of each of us a world that in so many ways is much more real even than the physical, that which you can see, controlling what we think about, what we desire, and what we want. See, and Christianity would affirm the suspicion that each of us have saying, yes, the inner life of the heart is a fundamental part of what it means to be a human being. Quoting Willard again, he says, interestingly, for all of our fine advances in scientific knowledge, <clears throat> the proud product of human thought, they tell us nothing about the inner life of the human being. The same is true for all the fields of study that try to base themselves upon such knowledge. This is because the subject matter of the sciences is precisely the outer, physical, measurable, publicly perceptible world, roughly the world of the five senses, as we often say. In its nature, the physical is totally different a different type of reality from the spiritual side of the human being, which remains hidden in a way the physical world never can. Science misses the heart. Christianity is not anti-science, but it is saying that there's a complexity to the human being that we have to pay attention to as this thing converges in your life, in your mind, in your heart, in your soul. Isn't it fascinating that when we talk to one another in community, when we sit at those tables, when you have folks over, you are not generally talking about things that are in the sciences, things that are observable. You're generally talking about how you feel. You're talking about impressions. You're talking about hopes. You're talking about frustrations. You're talking about internal desires. Man, I want to go here. Did you see that beautiful thing over there? I was on the beach the other day, and there was a sunset that made me feel so happy. There are things that I've done in my life. You're talking about impressions. You're talking about desires. You're talking about things that are on the inside. 
This is the predominant part of what it means for us to be a human being. Spiritual formation without regard to any specifically religious context or tradition is the process by which the human spirit or will is given a definite form or character. It is a process, writes Willard, that happens to everyone, terrorists as well as saints are the outcome of spiritual formation. Their spirits or hearts have been formed, period. In other words, you have no choice. You have no choice. Your heart, your mind, your spirit is gonna be shaped by something, by ideas, by a vision of the good life, by the community and the people that you spend time with. Turn on Netflix and your heart and your spirit will be formed by what you see, by what they value, by the good life that is painted. Live life in a certain neighborhood and you will be shaped and you will be formed. Read certain books and interact with certain ideas. Go to certain schools. Your life and your spirit will be formed, no doubt. All of us are being shaped. See, but Christianity says, this is key, write this down, counterformation is so significant and it's so important because of the disposition and the bent of my heart in your heart and because of the reality of the entrance of sin into the human narrative. Counterformation. Each of you being shaped, but what role will Christianity play? Almost all of the scholars say that Christianity is losing the formation battle. Discipleship, we are losing the battle because guess what? We are being discipled by our screens. So much content coming at our minds, going into our hearts, saying, oh no, the world is falling apart. Oh no, what's going on in our world? Yes, this is a moment for oh no at times, but also a moment for, for us to believe. Today is the day that God has made. Our minds must be shaped by the word of God. We gotta be equipped to live out the gospel. That's my job. And as a church plant, we are gonna get better and better, hopefully, and more proficient and we're gonna learn, and we're gonna make mistakes, and we're gonna get your opinions on what it means for you to be modern people who are apprenticing under Jesus, being equipped to live out the gospel so that you build up this thing called the church, right? Trinity exists to make immature followers of Jesus for the renewal of our city. Let me take you to part two. Equipping and formation, part one. Ministry and maturity, part two. Before I go there, let me just say, look at verse 11. I may have this quote. It's from a different, uh, different translation. Let me say that formation of your heart is an impossible task for me, for anybody who's in ministry. And this is why verse 11 in the NIV actually, I think, does a better job translating. It says this. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his saints for the work of ministry. In other words, the formation of our spirits is by the Spirit of God. I'm not equipped to do that in no way. All I have is a little more education on maybe what the Word of God is about, putting this whole book together and then trying to live out its principles together. Man, my heart is as broken as anybody in this room. I am in need of equipping. I am in need of formation. I am somebody who's going, come and be a part of my life. Help shape it. I want to be a part of your life. Let's move forward. But all of this comes from Jesus. He goes, Jesus Christ gave the church certain people, certain gifts, in order that he might use them to equip them. This is all about him. 
formation of our spirit by the spirit. Right? I just want to make that very clear. This is about the spirit of God changing us. And we want to be a church committed to your spiritual formation. Number two, ministry and maturity. Look again at verse 11. He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. There's that word, ministry. Ministry and maturity is part two. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Each of you have been given talents to get ahead in the world. It's a very talented room. But you have been given gifts in the church to help other people in this community to get ahead. Think about the difference between the two. Your talents help you get a promotion. Your talents win you friends. Your talents get you into certain communities and certain clubs. But your gifts propel the community forward. God has equipped you to use what's in your life, in your soul, to help us be more equipped. What Dallard Willard does, let me go back. Rather than Dallas Willard, Paul is the one who's writing that the goal of our ministry is to become a body of Christ that is unified in faith through a knowledge of the Son of God and one that grows more and more into the type of unified person that Jesus is. God wants to use your gifts. Think about your life for a minute. Can I just personalize it? Who are you? What talents do you have in the world that help you get ahead? But what has God put in your life to enable other people to get ahead? Love, mercy, hospitality, encouragement, a listening ear, empathy, wisdom, service, coming early to set up chairs certainly allows us to be in a more equipped body. Some say, man, I'm just coming at seven to set up a chair. Nobody would have anywhere to sit. Y'all be sitting Indian style going, when's this going to end? You're sitting in chairs and you're equipping each other going, this is what it means to help other people get ahead in this community. Setting up a table so we can share a meal, service, mercy, love, wisdom, counsel, teaching, opening your home. These are different things that God has given you so that you can look out at the body and go, how can I make it more complete? Without your gift, we are incomplete. Can I say it like that? Without your contribution, we don't function well. It's so easy to consume organizations, consume ideas. The church is not a consumer organization. It's a place of contribution. You're going to say, but my gifts don't matter. They're not as great. They're not as big. They're not as important. Has the ear ever said to the foot, you're not as important? Has the nose ever said to the eyebrows, man, you're kind of funky. You're, you're like hairy and above the face. What's that about? No, it's like we're one body, right? We work together. Nothing is more significant than anything. Jesus Christ is the head. We are the body and we work together. Without your contribution, we are incomplete. We want to help equip you in the gospel so you can say, how can I make a contribution to this church and be a part of what Jesus is doing in his church? There's some unique phrasing in here, and it'll take us a while to unpack it. We won't do it today. It'll take a lifetime to unpack it when he says, we're trying to build one another up in the unity and the knowledge of God. What does that mean to know God? You use your gifts to help us have a unified faith, but so that we come to a shared understanding of the knowledge of God. How do I know the Son of God? 
Let's make it real simple. You apprentice under him. That's it. You sit with him. You spend time with him and others who are following him. You allow him to shape you and the group of people who are following him. And you learn his character. You learn about him. How many of you know Michael Jordan? I mean, I wish I, I have dreams about meeting Michael Jordan. I still want to meet Michael Jordan. I love The Last Dance, especially on Netflix. How many of you know Matt Damon? Anybody? We, we know about him. How many of you know Matt Damon? If you do, I want to have lunch with you, right? We know about them. We've seen them in their work. We've seen them professionally. We've read about them. We know the statistics. But when, it, when the Bible talks about the knowledge of God, he's not saying just know about him. He's saying know him. Man, sit with him. Read his word. Let him shape your life. Let him have all of you. Hold nothing back. Your job is to lay your life down, to let him take it. But we do this together because it's so easy and so tempting for me to take it back up and for me to live for myself. But I want to equip us. This is what God has called this church to be about, equipping you in the gospel to be formed by Jesus, to apprentice under him. Before I move on to the last part, saints and sinners, I'd love for you to look at verse 14, one of the unique things that happens when we come together in unity of faith and unity and around our knowledge of God is that we're no longer at the whims of public opinion. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Man, this is what the world, the flesh, and the devil are after in your life. Deceitful schemes. Wants to deceive you. Wants you to think about purpose, love, and meaning in ways that are counter-gospel. But they're going to be close. They're going to be so close. And you're going to have to be equipped. You're going to have to know the difference between gospel motivations and secular motivations. There are so many storylines saying, come, find fulfillment. Come find joy. Come find health. Come find healing. Come live forever. Come be immortal. Come find a life of meaning and purpose outside of the gospel. And it's all of these deceitful schemes that are after your affection. And if we don't take that seriously, you will lose and I will lose. We will all lose. But I come together in this place so that you can use your gift to help me be built up in a knowledge of Jesus Christ so when the deceitful schemes come after me and say, live for money, live for fame, pour everything into your children. They are the point of your life. Man, I love my children. They're not the point of my life. Jesus Christ is the point of my life. Will you help me remember that? Can I help you remember that? The beautiful things in life are the deceitful schemes where the devil goes in and goes, man, it's so good and it's so close, just live for it. But see, we anchor on the gospel and we come together to remind one another, apprentice under him is worth it. Third part, saints and sinners, verse 11. Let me take you to the last part. And he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. <clears throat> for many of you, maybe your biggest stumbling block in what I have shared today and what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 4 is the fact that he addresses the church as saints. And here's your rebuttal. This is simple. I'm not a saint. I'm not a saint. 
You're telling me I'm supposed to be kind of equipped. The saints are supposed to be equipped for the work of ministry. It's the whole vision today is about the saints being equipped for the work of ministry. I'm not a saint. Number one, I don't work for the church. I don't wear a frock. I don't want to wear a frock. I don't know why saints always wear frocks, right? I'm not about that. I'm kind of a normal person. I make a lot of mistakes. I have good days and bad days. I have successes and failures. I am not a saint. What is this all about? Who are the saints anyway? Maybe if you've been around the church for a while, your mind goes to some of the great biblical heroes like Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Joshua and David and Samuel and Jeremiah and this guy who spent the night in the lion's den. His name was Daniel. Maybe you think about these people. These folks must have been the saints, right? But what do they all share in common? What do all of those great heroes of the Bible share? What brings them together into a common family is simply this, the fact that they all had sinful hearts, abject brokenness, and a consuming need of God's grace, which he gave to them in full. That's what it means to be a saint. I'm broken, but you're going to use me. I'm messed up, but use my family. I'm going to lie about my sister, but you're going to use me, Abraham and Sarah, to create a nation as countless as the stars in the heaven. You're going to use me? Man, I'm a broken dude. We make all sorts of excuses. That is the only thing that binds the saints together is that God uses them in their abject brokenness. And he says, I'd love to use you if you'd let me. Will you let me? Anyone who apprentices under Jesus is a saint. The word hagion is the word that is used there, and that word means set apart by God, holy or sacred. Saints are people who are deeply flawed and in need of a savior. Look at Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Last time I checked, when the Apostle Paul writes the word all, he means everyone. Everyone has fallen short. So what about the saints? Where are the saints? They've all fallen short. They're all falling short of the glory of God. Yes, that's part one. But then 323 keeps going. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, there's only one true saint and his name is Jesus. And he invites us into his family. And he says, I know who you are. I know what's going on in your life. I know that you are totally divided. I know that your heart beats for me one moment and then it beats for itself the next. I know who you are. No more hiding. You are counted as righteous because of me. You're not actually holy, but in the royal court of the divine king, I have made you holy. I have covered you. You are now mine. I consider you saint. How beautiful. Now we get to be equipped as saints Completely sinful, but more love than you could ever imagine. Isn't that word which you thought was something to turn you off now the thing that actually pulls you in? I get to be considered a saint, me. Man, if you only knew my life, Jesus goes, I know your life. I know everything about your life. And I have sent my son to cover your life. You are counted righteous. Amen. Amen. Life together, apprenticing under Jesus for the world. Before I pray, pull this little handout out. Just glance at it before you put it in your Bible, put it in your journal, or put it on your fridge. We've called this our life together model. 
in this season of Trinity's life? What would it mean for me to connect to this church, to be shaped, to be equipped, and to be formed? Look at the side that has uh, the, the beautiful pictures and not the descriptions yet. This says, the gospel creates a radical new community. At Trinity, we are committed to a vision for loving both one another and the world around us. Our life together model visualizes how you can get connected to community at our church. And the arrows continue to keep going, don't they? There's not necessarily a starting point. In some ways, there's a chronology. Come to church, be a part of the community, but then dive into group life. This is where the gospel goes deep, where you can be shaped, where you practice the way of Jesus. Consider being on a team. None of these are mandates. These are all invitations. What would it look like for you to be a part of a team, to use your gift? Some of it can be formal. Almost all of it can be informal. Use your life to build a team, to build a community. Use your home. Use the gifts you've been given. But as we do that, we are sent out on sacrificial mission. It means we are seeking the spiritual, the social, and the cultural renewal of our city. God didn't put us here so we could be a holy huddle. He put us here so we could be shaped and formed and sent back out into the world. Do you want that? Let us do that together. That is the vision of where we are heading as a church. Descriptions on the back, but of course, personal conversations. Let us know how we can do this thing. Life together, apprenticing under Jesus for the city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your profound love for us. We pause to say thank you. There are a lot of competing versions and visions of the good life. But in Jesus, we are given the only one that is transcendent, that is stable, that makes room for people to be imperfect. I'm so thankful you don't make a contract with us. You're not a contractual God. You are a covenantal God. It means you enter into relationship with us saying, no matter what comes, I'm not going anywhere. I love you. And you have sent gifts into your church. You've equipped us in different ways, in different seasons, with different backgrounds and personalities so that we each and all of us might be built up, that we might be equipped in our knowledge of the gospel, spiritually formed. I thank you that when you wanted to form and change the world, you didn't just send a manual from heaven. You sent a man from heaven. You sent your son. And he spent life together with 12 men for three years. And he renovated their hearts so that they might be sent back out as fishermen or tax collectors, people serving civically, teachers, moms and dads. They might be sent out on mission sacrificial mission, seeking the good of Jesus in their neighborhoods, their towns, and their cities. That wakes us up in the morning. Thank you that we don't have to be perfect. Thank you that we're considered saints because we're covered. We are holy because of Jesus. Am I actually holy in my day-to-day? No. Am I counted holy, and does that drive me to live for Jesus? Yes. So form us, shape us at the deepest of levels, by your love. In Jesus' name, amen.